I'm John Torek. And I'm Danny Sullivan, and you're listening to Speaking of Design. Stories and sounds from the world of engineering, architecture, and beyond. We're here to bring to life stories behind some of the industry's most innovative design projects. In more than a decade working with engineers and architects, we've been witness to exciting breakthroughs in the way communities are designed. We want to share our best stories with you. Today we'll tell you the story of an American construction management team supporting the U.S. Air Force Civil Engineer Center in Afghanistan. Their six-year effort was about much more than just building national security facilities in the war-torn country. This has given me a chance to go out and figure out that, you know, the Afghans are really no different than anybody else. They want to have their children, they want to see their children grow up and do better than they did. We, we might practice some different religions and different customs, but we're all just the same. And our ability to help them learn something better and to be proud of the things that they did and to hear many of them say that they look forward to bringing their kids to some of these sites to show their children that they had an active part in building something for the country of Afghanistan. To me, it's just very rewarding and makes the sacrifice of not being with my family a lot easier to take knowing that we've made such a, a positive impact in their lives. When I heard I am going to fly in a Blue Angel, that was something so excited for me. Like from yesterday till now, I was so excited. Oh my God, I want to be tomorrow and I want to go fly. I was so excited. That's Second Lieutenant Nilafar Romani, the first woman to serve as a fixed wing pilot in the Afghan Air Force. In 2015, she came to the U.S. to receive an International Women of Courage Award from the U.S. State Department. On her trip, she got to meet Michelle Obama and fly with the Blue Angels. She was among the first pilots to graduate from the Afghan Air Force's new pilot training program at Shindan Air Base in 2012. In my country, there is like no rights for the females, no rights for the female being in the military, no rights being a pilot. And I, I wanted to be the first, I wanted to go and accept this risk and be a pilot and be example for other women behind me. As she told KPBS News in San Diego, being the first in her field brought on an added risk. Um, it was not that easy. It was many challenging, many risks for me and my family life. And it, it has to be someone to change it. It has to be someone to accept this risk. If I say I don't, who's gonna be it? Who's gonna start? If I don't start it now, when I'm gonna start it? I was the youngest one between all the Air Force and the military people. And I was like, when I face with the problems, I think that made me strong. Facing with problems, that gives me power because I, know I was not as strong maybe the first day that I came in. Lieutenant Romani completed nearly 200 missions during her Air Force training. Her story and the inspiration it's provided for women in her country and across the world would not have been possible without a team that included a former member of the U.S. Air Force. As a, an Air Force fighter pilot with combat missions in the Middle East, I, I never got to really know the people that were below in those places that I flew over and, and where I did my job. That's Chewy Johnston, program manager for HDR's construction services team in Afghanistan. In 2009, the United States Air Force Civil Engineer Center hired his team to provide on-site quality assurance. Their work supported the NATO and U.S. Department of Defense's mission to expand Afghan National Security Force facilities. Essentially, to give Afghanistan the infrastructure it needs to provide its own security. And help save American lives and taxpayer dollars, 
by reducing the need for U.S. forces on the ground. It was a mission Chewie gladly accepted. My kids had just finished school, and um, it just kind of seemed like an obvious thing to do. And when I first came over, we felt we would hire a program manager in country. I would talk with Sean about it. We couldn't find one that we were happy with. So I kind of morphed into staying here long term. So that's how I got here. Sean O'Brien, the Afghanistan Construction Management Program Director for HDR, said his team felt a sense of duty in the mission. I saw the need that our client had and our country had, and I thought that we had the capability after already working in the Middle East to step up and to take on the program and help them out. In 2009, President Obama laid out new plans at the U.S. Military Academy at West Point. I want to speak to you tonight about our effort in Afghanistan. We must strengthen the capacity of Afghanistan's security forces and government so that they can take lead responsibility for Afghanistan's future. They'll increase our ability to train competent Afghan security forces and to partner with them so that more Afghans can get into the fight. And they will help create the conditions for the United States to transfer responsibility to the Afghans. The mission really was rebuilding the infrastructure for Afghanistan so that they could provide security for their citizens. And that included, you know, rebuilding their army after the fall of the Taliban, as well as, you know, expanding capabilities just for general police. So a very intensive effort was underway parallel to other programs for education and medicine and all the other structures of government. But our client was primarily focused on uh, reestablishing the security for the outlying areas. Sean and Chewy's team supported construction of more than 300 buildings in 10 regions across 46 different project sites. They inspected construction activities for the U.S. Air Force, identified problems, and stopped work until any issues were corrected. We ended up operating in most every single province of Afghanistan, including Kandahar, Helmand, Kabul, and many others. This included updating a complete Air Force base for their Air Force training for their new personnel to become pilots in Afghanistan. It also included a military university to be their equivalent of West Point here in the United States. And the largest project that we worked on is called the Ministry of Defense building, which is in Afghanistan, analogous to the U.S.'s Pentagon. In addition to the Air Force Base and the five-story, 121,000-square-foot Ministry of Defense, the team oversaw construction of all the related security infrastructure. There were numerous border patrol stations, police recruiting stations, and most all of the projects, like I said, were multi-building locations that included barracks, dining halls, classrooms, firing ranges, fueling points, you name it, mosques, hospitals, clinics, everything you would need to operate a modern police and military force. However, the mission was about more than buildings. It was about creating professional jobs for Afghans, stimulating their economy, and inspiring hope. As the U.S. construction management team arrived, they set up teams of Americans, local workers, and workers from other countries. American workers trained and mentored their Afghan counterparts in modern construction practices, as Chewy described over the phone from Afghanistan. And we reaped incredible benefits from it. That was increasing the knowledge of Afghan engineers. We're also helping the Afghan economy by hiring Afghan engineers. And, you know, we learned a lot from them in terms of the culture and what Afghan expectations were and their capabilities. 
while at the same time they learn from us modern technologies, international codes, and different ways and considerations and techniques of how to do construction. I, I think that's one of them, and, I, and the, the program that uh, really started most of this was Afghans First. A volunteer named Richard Southwell explained Afghan First in a NATO production about the program. It is argued at the highest level and endorsed at the highest level that the Afghan First program uh, is one key element to strategic stability in uh, not just the province but the whole country. We're effectively creating alternative options for uh, influenceable young males to elect to do business, build factories and shops, and this gives them the choice to do business rather than uh, adopt insurgency. But there were challenges with hiring Afghan workers. The country had not seen major construction between the end of the Soviet-Afghan War in 1989 and the beginning of the war in Afghanistan after the September 11th attacks. With more than a generation passing without a construction industry to speak of, the workforce was undertrained, and practices were, at best, 30 years outdated. Nick Akai, a project manager with HDR, explained how construction basics were new to many local workers. All these Afghan subcontractors that were working for the, the American companies who were hired to execute this construction oftentimes had no, had, you know, never, again, never seen a pump truck, never seen a cement mixer truck, and certainly not a batch plan either. So a uh, ton of opportunities to train these Afghan construction workers in these technologies that are, of course, well known to everybody here, but had never been encountered by them. Which sometimes led to some amusing situations. Chewy described one example involving Chris Savovsky from the National Defense University. They were looking at some fresh concrete that was just coming out of a truck, and Chris grabbed a handful of it and rubbed it between his hands and kind of just wanted to feel the moisture content of it. You know, he's just a good old Carolina boy, and so he looked at his Afghans and said, come on, grab a ball, get a feel for this stuff. They had all been told in their academic classes that the acidity of the concrete would rot their hands away, and they were very scared and not ready to grab the concrete. And it was funny just to watch them as we showed them that your hands wouldn't be damaged, especially if you rinse them afterwards. And those were some of the exciting things that, you know, while it seems small maybe at the time, as I look back on our experiences there, it was a good learning experience for all of us. The Afghan First program also encouraged contractors to use local building materials. Local suppliers had a learning curve as well. This, this project involved probably 15 to 20 dormitories and multi-story facilities, all of, most of it cinder block, and so they noticed early on that these things were just breaking and very brittle, and, and so we tried to inspect them when they came out of the maker who was making them on site and just kept telling them that these were not going to make it, that the product was deficient. The team worked along with the general contractor and local brick maker to modify the mix, not only to turn out high enough quality for the dorms, but to help Afghan suppliers make money in the future. We saw many of the same things with concrete, which we've alluded to before, whether it was delivered at the right temperature or the mix was incorrect. We had the, the general contractor had to remove many columns at this site because they poured the concrete and they didn't pour it right or they didn't vibrate it correctly. So there were a whole lot of lessons that were learned. They knew they had to meet and, and get to that level of quality, and many of them were very quickly, uh, would quickly adapt to that. There were other instances where basic U.S. designs required some introduction in Afghanistan. One example was the use of the P-Trap. Today, we'll be showing you how to install a continuous waste kit and P-Trap under a kitchen sink. The continuous waste kit consists of inch and a half tubular connections designed to hook two sink drains into one P-Trap. 
The P-trap is an ingenious device that traps a small amount of water inside of itself. This water forms a barrier between your home and the nauseating and sometimes even toxic gases emitting from the sewer line. You'll find a P-trap underneath your bathroom or kitchen sink at home. It's a familiar pipe connector that looks like the letter P on its side, connecting the water draining vertically from your sink into the horizontal pipe running into the wall. Besides collecting large debris like hair, sand, or jewelry from clogging the drain deeper in the system, it prevents sewer gases from leaking back into your home. And of course those gases aren't something that most Westerners want to smell, and they haven't been reused mostly in Afghanistan. And They got introduced, and over time, Afghan plumbers began to use them even more and found out how much that they were just as easy as the other device, and so that, that changed things very quickly. But in other instances, American contractors had to consider long-term maintenance in the design. Knowing that it would be impossible to find replacement parts or specialists to repair certain equipment, the contractors elected to use older building systems. I just to remember a thing about the Ministry of Defense where the original heating and cooling system in the design was a very modern system. Since the design went on, it was decided that the Afghans did not have the parts in country to make any repairs or modifications should they need to be done. And so we went to a system of units instead of one huge subsystem. And you know, there were many things that we did like that, whether it was parts in plumbing or, or other areas. We wanted to see what the local economy could sustain so the pair parts would be readily available. So there were a lot of things that we were able to influence and enhance the process or ensure that there were no slowdowns in the speed of construction to meet so we could meet deadlines. And a lot of that was just working and teaming and trying to find a way to make things work and work for the right reasons. There were plenty of lessons when it came to the design of the Ministry of Defense building. One of the crown jewels of the program, it's Afghanistan's version of the Pentagon. Uh, what really made this unique as well is that there was a contest for the design held amongst the different Afghan universities. And so a university team is credited with the actual design in terms of the architectural outlook. You know, once they got into the nuts and bolts of design, of course, that was done by the design build engineer. Some of the design elements had never been used before in Afghanistan. Unique to Afghanistan was the fact it was divided into seven seismic regions. It's the first of its kind here in Afghanistan, and there were many things that we learned on this project because it lasted for over three and a half years. Um, and that was a challenge in putting those together because very few companies, it was something that was totally new here. Other unique features helped address the reality that the ministry needed to be built to withstand attacks. If you look at a picture of that, you'll see that it has huge amounts of glass, probably at least 30 to 40 feet high in terms of the glass that's on each of the facades. The glass they brought would, would shatter and break inside, and thereby if there was a blast, you would have injuries inside from just the breaking of the glass. And if you think about your car windshield, we were able to get that glass changed into something for those who aren't experts in glass, to be just like your car windshield, that it may crack, but it doesn't crack into many pieces and go flying in the air. With something like that, you've made the project a little more sturdier and you've made it safer in the event that there were some kind of terrorist attack or blast nearby. The learning on the job wasn't all technical. A lot of it was cultural. I already have the experience in the Middle East, uh, both on active duty in Iraq, Afghanistan, and Bahrain, and then, you know, my experience um, in the civilian world with HDR managing projects in Kuwait. That's Bill Wright. 
the quality control manager for the program. We actually flew over to the Middle East, brought the guys out of Afghanistan and held training, you know, on every specific task, not only for them to understand the task, but to give them assurances and, and to build up their self-confidence when they're on the job site. Because one of the things we experienced is, you know, a lot of times they're very slow to step up and criticize somebody because they, they didn't feel comfortable with what they were doing. On a construction site, that can mean pointing out a mistake that could set the project back or cost the contractor millions of dollars. Or even alerting your manager of an unsafe situation that could be a matter of life and death for a coworker. Chewy said it took some getting used to. I could think of one Afghan in particular, and he was very competent with his engineering skills, but very timid and very shy when it came to taking any responsibility. And early in the program, you know, when we saw some crazy safety concerns, an example might be a, somebody welding without gloves or without maybe a pair of sunglasses or maybe even doing it in a pair of flip-flops. Early on, the Afghans were not apt to say anything against the Afghan general contractors that were working on the sites. Part of the Afghan culture is to not to cause trouble, and, and they felt like they might cause trouble. And as they learned, it was okay to say those safety things because the kind of things that were going on would impact somebody for the rest of their life. The Afghan workers learned from their American counterparts that it was okay to raise safety concerns. Because those are the kind of things that can impact someone for the rest of their life. And once they saw that there were ways you can approach the supervision on how to do that, and that they also had a responsibility for any life-threatening actions, they saw that it was okay from our example that you can approach the general contractor and tell them what you saw and remind them that this is in accordance with the Army Corps of Engineers field manual for safety or whatever document you wanted to reference. Besides, it was the right thing to do to protect somebody. The local workers began to form new habits and build the confidence to speak up. By the time they'd been through a project with us, their confidence kind of skyrocketed, frankly, and they were happy to engage with, in a professional manner, obviously, but holding their ground and, you know, stating their case with these construction contractors, QC personnel, and, and in a far more effective manner than had been the case at the start. The program became an educational experience for the Americans as well. After all, they were working long, grueling days working side-by-side side with their local counterparts. And one of the benefits of being invested with a team and sharing a common goal is getting to know your teammates' differences. It made an impact with Chewy. I think for me personally, I learned a whole lot about Islam, and I learned a lot about Asian cultures. I learned about their holidays, Eid, and Ramadan and what they actually were for and how they were celebrated and why they were celebrated. Along with that, we learned how to integrate some of their cultural requirements, uh, times for praying, how we integrated and allowed them time on the work site to do their prayers so that they could live the life that they were used to but yet still be productive. How everybody got along and found ways to cover the timings for those types of events was, to me, a very rewarding thing while at the same time learning so much about the culture and the religion here. Sean said the team learned to take culture into account as they planned future projects. One of the things that impacted me or our program related to their culture and holidays is just a different schedule that they're on and some of the long breaks that some of the construction contractors didn't take into account and that really delayed some of the programs but we were there for six years and so 
learning on that experience, we were able to build that into the program and provide you know, more realistic schedules for the whole program. With Americans, Afghans, and third country workers teamed together, you'd think language would have been a major obstacle. But Nick said it actually proved to be less of an issue than expected. It wasn't really that the language barrier, certainly between us and the Afghans, if you were a North American trying to make your way in one of the towns there that with folks that only speak Dari or Pashtun or, or some other dialect that is not doesn't even remotely resemble English, I'm sure you know none of us would do very well. But the Afghans and the third country national engineers that we hired in all cases were quite fluent in English and they were all engineering grads so there was no language barrier that we really had to overcome with them and the Afghans in particular were their English was very good. However, Bill said communicating was never dull. It's funny there's words in Arabic I mean there's words in the engineering language for building things and doing concrete in fact I think concrete's an example that does not exist in the Arabic language. So even Arab speakers are having to jump out to the English language to say things, you know, in English. You know, there's these new um, industry terms that come online, and we adopt them into the English language, and other languages don't do that. So I would say that, yeah, the language barrier was surprisingly not an issue in this environment because almost everybody speaks English. The story wasn't all about mentoring and culture, though. The days were long, the locations were remote, and the risk was high. Nick described how a typical day would begin. Days ran, you know, 10 hours generally. It makes for a long week when you're working, you know, six days a week and 10 hours a day. So definitely we put on a lot of, you know, long, hard hours in that during that program. The typical day would involve uh, the early morning tailgate safety meeting with the construction contractor, and, and that may or may not include in a separate side meeting with our own personnel to highlight specific safety issues that we want them to focus on for that day. And so after the uh, for the tailgate safety talk in the morning, we generally have a meeting with the construction contractor's QC personnel to talk about their plans for the day. And then we'd you know, go out, and our guys would be observing all the different construction activities that are active on site for that day. Sometimes, too, there would be visits from the military, whether it be Afghan or American military. So we'd sometimes be tasked to accompany those folks and, and around the job site and explain to the visiting you know, American or ISAF representatives you know, the status of the project. Sean told us that the job sites weren't easy to get to. For the most part, all these projects were out in remote areas. And as such, security had to be brought in, specifically for the construction site, and they would build a perimeter wall filled with these huge sandbags that would be between 10 and 20 feet tall, and they would bring in static guard to man positions along the wall. They would have to have a specific entry gate with security procedures to enter the site, and then once our personnel were on site, they pretty much were not allowed to leave hardly ever and they didn't have first world living conditions. What they lived in were cargo storage containers that you would see on an ocean going ship or on the back of a train that had been converted with a bunk bed and a window and a door and oftentimes an air conditioner. And that box was the person's living conditions for years and meals were all conducted on site and the person lived and breathed this construction project on behalf of the U.S. government and the Afghan people uh, for the whole time that they were there. Given the travel logistics, it usually meant long stays for team members. They were able to leave, but just due to their situation, um, they ended up 
staying on site with the project for a year at a time and maybe only making it home once every year. So a lot of sacrifices were made by a lot of people to help ensure the safety and the success of the program. In addition to the challenge of getting team members to the remote job sites, Nick said they face similar problems moving construction materials. Material procurement and transport and logistics in, in Afghanistan is was always a significant challenge and one of the few areas where we really were sort of compelled to commiserate with the construction contractors. <laughs> they had a pavement machine that was attacked by the Taliban and blown up, and, and a paving machine is not something that you can procure overnight, <laughs> and so that did, uh, um, and transport overnight across hundreds of miles of you know fairly desolate and remote landscape. In that particular instance, uh, yes, I mean, it was a huge challenge and it did set the project back several months. And there's nothing you can do about things like that. Sean said that security was not an issue the team took lightly. One of the strategies for security from day one was to always maintain a security stance that was above those of the other contractors and firms operating in Afghanistan. And we employed a professional security company as an advisor that helped us with all of our protocols, and we stuck by all of them rigorously for the six years. And I'm happy to report that as a result of that, as well as just being blessed with, uh, with luck sometimes, that uh, you never know what's going to happen. But we were accident and injury-free for the duration of our time there. Chewy explained how the team approached their security each time they needed to travel within the country. It started either a day or it could be even before that. You would talk with our security professionals in the detail that were with us, and we would look at the threats, and sometimes they would send out an advance patrol to check the roads and look at any potential threats that might be there. On the morning of travel, everyone would check the U.S. military intelligence network to see what they were saying about the areas they'd be traveling through. They'd make sure the places they were traveling were designated green or safe. Then we would get dressed up in our body armor and ride an armored-up when I say armored up, it was, it was they were Toyota Land Cruisers that had armor on all four sides, run-flat tires, and bulletproof glass. We would ride in a, a convoy, but not in the sense you would think of 18-wheelers. Would be, we'd have spacing between us so that if something happened, you, you had room to escape. Though the construction team didn't carry weapons, the security professionals with them were armed and well-trained. We had trained in these vehicles, and we trained repeatedly in these vehicles, and, of course, when we did travel, everybody had their heads and were looking around to make sure that if we saw something suspicious that we could avoid it. So, you know, sometimes it was risky, sometimes it wasn't the most comfortable. But by planning and talking about those things, we found ways to mitigate that risk. It wasn't just how they traveled. To improve the chances that they could stay in touch with one another, the construction teams carried both satellite phones and phones with two different Afghan cellular providers. And the team even had to consider how they looked. And one of the things that we worked hard with our security protocols is to make sure that we look very much like the people inside. And I'll give you an example. When we travel, we wear, a, if you will, a scarf or a, a cloth. The scarf or especially big shirt would be used to hide their body armor underneath. And many on the team would grow beards. And I'm 41 right now that my wife doesn't like. <laughs> But it's just to try and blend in and make sure that we look like the locals as much as we can so that we can minimize that risk. In spite of all these precautions, the team did face some close calls, as Sean told us. There was one incident at uh, Kandahar Air Base where uh, our staff were living, and uh, Nick was there when this happened. 
is that the Taliban overran the perimeter of the Marine base. Unfortunately, they made it to the airfield and were able to destroy some of the aircraft and also engaged in that firefight. There were some U.S. casualties. And so that was a um, very much a uh, scary situation. If they had breached the uh, wall at just a different area and we were in between them and the airfield, it could have been a more dangerous situation for our staff. So, you know, that was one of the incidents where we were just glad that uh, we didn't, we were not impacted by that uh, firefight. Many of the civilian contractors spent that night in a drainage ditch, listening to the sounds of gunfire. Chewy described another dangerous situation that occurred in January 2016. We were at a life support area called the, the Baron, which was really close to the Kabul International Airport. And we had, uh, there was a break in construction and we had all departed. And uh, just after we had departed, there was a huge explosion. The general contractor, the living space where they lived in, a, in an LSA next door to us, was critically damaged and they had to move to a new location. That attack occurred near a bus, which injured more than 14 and killed many of the Nepalese guards on board. Although American troops remained behind to support Afghanistan security forces, the United States and NATO formally ended the war in Afghanistan at the end of 2014. President Barack Obama marked the formal end of the U.S. combat mission in Afghanistan Sunday, saying that after 13 years, the longest war in American history was coming to a responsible conclusion. This month, after more than 13 years, our combat mission in Afghanistan will be over. This month, America's war in Afghanistan will come to a responsible end. Although it hasn't brought peace, it has transitioned the responsibility to Afghanistan to provide security for its people. The American civilians supported the U.S. military in building national security facilities, which the country needs to train its new generation of police and military. Which Sean pointed out would not have been possible without the courage of those serving. Our client at the Air Force Civil Engineer Center really went to extraordinary lengths to ensure the program's success. They had young officers and civilians working for the Air Force on helicopters flying across all parts of Afghanistan, checking out construction sites for suitability, um, all different kinds of things that they were doing. And without them, it would have been impossible for us to follow on and support them. And so they had a team of dedicated people in country for the whole duration of the seven years. They just did a fantastic job. The members of the military left a similar impression on Nick. I definitely uh, came away with a healthy amount of respect for the Marine Corps and the, the level of professionalism and, and you know dedication that the those young folks that, you know, I'm twice their age. And so I was kind of blown away by the just the level of professionalism and, and dedication and commitment to their job and to the service. I was very impressed by that and proud, frankly. Americans on the ground have seen, little by little, the human impact their work is making. Nick recalled a story he heard about Afghan education prior to the rebuilding effort. One of the sadder aspects of the whole um, experience was one of the consequences of this, you know, decades-long civil war in Afghanistan is, is the fact that many of the more highly educated uh, people have either left or been killed 
um, during the conflict. And so the, the country is actually in the process of losing a lot of its language because those, you know, learned people are no longer there. Um, definitely that was one of the, the more sobering aspects of, the, of, of that whole thing. For Bill, one of the lasting legacies of his work has been being able to help educate local engineers, encourage their development, and help them inspire future generations. We still have that cadre of Afghan nationals that, you know, that grew up underneath us that we were able to train, develop relationships with, and they're there to continue to support the HDR mission. Because as you know, it's hard for Americans to move around Afghanistan Whereas with these local nationals, you know, they're able to get a lot of footwork done for us with less of a security issue. And to me, it's a legacy that we're maintaining and, and, you know, we'll leave behind as we all transition them to other things. Nick said those relationships that were such a big part of this program will continue to make an impact. And actually, it's funny, uh, just this past week, one of them called me up out of the blue and then let me know that he successfully uh, immigrated to the U.S. And so I met him for lunch here in Austin, Texas, and actually trying to find a job for him here now in Texas. So, and he's one of the Afghan engineers that we trained over there. You know, if we can find him a job over here, that'd be fantastic because it's definitely very rewarding to see that he's actually been able to make it over here because it is a land of opportunity and it's a great place to live. And he's got far more opportunity now than he would have had there if we can help him out. So he's, he and his family are safe, which is another huge plus. We talked to that local worker over the phone from Afghanistan and got a real sense of the difference the program has made in his life. Good morning, everybody. Uh, my name is uh, Asif. I'm from Afghanistan. I have been uh, working with ADR since 2012, and uh, I have uh, worked in different projects, construction and design. Asif said he noticed that when working with Americans, teamwork and equality were part of the project. I have learned uh, how to build a lasting relationship with other teams, contractors, and work collaboratively to achieve the common goals. And I have also learned to accept uh, how to accept the suggestions from for improving the quality of work development and implementing a project or a task. And uh, I have also learned uh, how to apply problem-solving techniques and identify the problems, issues which are we are observing on. A colleague of Asif's named Obaid said he's helped pass along what he's learned to the next generation of engineers in Afghanistan. He teaches basic engineering to students, as well as how to use AutoCAD 2D and 3D, which he learned on the job. Asif said the program has made a big impact for the Afghan people. People are very happy and people are very self-motivated by seeing these constructions that have been built by U.S. government. And uh, I've seen, I've noticed uh, many people are, uh, you know, self-motivated by seeing those uh, projects and have joined the Army of Afghanistan, even the Air Force and uh, uh, the other portions. And he added that his life has changed a lot since the program began. I can say, I can say one of the big impacts as an example that I have started working with EGR when I was single and during the EGR project and during the EGR task that I have done, I got married and now I have a one daughter. The magnitude of the impact isn't lost on Asif, so much so that he wanted to conclude the interview by directly thanking everyone involved with the program. 
it needs to be mentioned that we are very, especially Afghanistan, uh, the government of Afghanistan people are very happy with these uh, U.S. projects in Afghanistan. It's good to mention that. Uh, thank you very much, and thank you. We can thank U.S. government that uh, they are helping Afghanistan to be developed and get rid of these uh, war to contact our country, and we are very uh, happy and thank you for serving our country. Chewy said he also feels a deeper connection to his Afghan colleagues. They've really made a difference, and I've had the privilege of watching them grow in professionally, personally, and also an incredible friendship, which uh, I don't think is ever going to end, and I sure hope it doesn't. Progress has not been a straight line in Afghanistan. Nilofar Romani, the young Afghan pilot, she applied for political asylum in the U.S. after receiving death threats in her home country. But she still has high aspirations for the impact she can make in the world. I feel this is my responsibility. This is my responsibility to be here. And you might be an example for other women that they are coming behind you. I think it's like not only me is being a great feeling, it is for many women that they watch me and say, okay, when she did it, why we don't do it? I need to go farther, farther in my future, like a very bright future, and be something for other females they come in behind me. So my plan is like to be instructor pilot soon and to train the young generation. And though there have been setbacks, there have also been historic days where you can chart the progress. The queue started forming well before Kabul's polling stations opened. Despite the Taliban threats to target this election, people wanted to vote. In Afghanistan's 5,000-year history, this election marks the first democratic transfer of power, and people here have been eager to seize the chance. Specifically, one of the most rewarding days in the whole program for me over the course of the six to seven years was the day they held free democratic elections in Afghanistan, and the people were able to go to the voting polls, and they had the purple ink on their fingers and they were so proud to be able to have a part in their country's future. And you know, their election of their president and everything else, it really showed that our whole program had been successful because we had been there to help establish and provide that security infrastructure to allow the government to move forward. And so many people contributed to that from our company and, and just the Afghan citizens themselves. And so that was an extremely rewarding day to see happen. Special thanks to our colleague Joe Moore for co-writing this episode. For more information on this podcast, visit hdrinc.com backslash speaking of design. You'll find links to pictures, articles, and more information about this project. If you like what you heard, be sure to rate us or leave feedback on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts.